0: If you would, take your Bible in hand and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4. And for a few moments this morning, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of an emergency room doctor. I want you to pretend that it's about 1 a.m. in the middle of your shift, and so far it's been a pretty quiet night with just the occasional broken arm and that one kid whose nose wouldn't stop bleeding. But all of a sudden, everything changes. You can hear the ambulance siren screaming as it approaches. In a flash, the emergency room doors burst open as a crowd of nurses and paramedics rapidly roll into the room, a patient, and it's obvious at first glance that this is a very serious situation. They go on to hurriedly explain to you that this person has been in a serious motorcycle accident, has multiple fractures in his right leg, a broken pelvis, and a number of lacerations all across his body. But in addition to these wounds, it's apparent that there's also somewhere within his body an eternal bleeding or internal bleeding. And if the source of that bleed is not found and resolved quickly, the patient obviously will not survive. Now, though we have some medical professionals in this room, most of us have never been to any kind of formal medical training. And yet I'm confident that if you were in that room that night and everyone turned to you, and said, what is the first thing that we need to resolve in this patient's situation? You could give the right answer. Obviously, we have to find the source of the bleeding and stop it, first and foremost. But now imagine that in, if in that scenario, that emergency room doctor first began by doing surgery on the man's leg, to first prepare his repair his fractures, Even those of us who have no medical training would understand that that would be a devastating mistake, that while he's fixing this man's leg, he may indeed die. But let me pose another scenario. Let's say that he does the right thing, and he he rushes in, and he finds the source of that bleed, and he resolves it, but as soon as the patient wakes up from anesthesia, he simply discharges him and sends him on his way without addressing any of the rest of his wounds. We would also understand that this too, would be a shocking response. What we have to understand is that when it comes to our theology and practice in the local church, we face both of these dangers, and many fall into one of these two extremes. There are some who fail to see the distinction in Scripture between primary and secondary issues, and that error results in elevating every doctrine to the same level as the primary doctrines such as the person and work of Christ, the doctrines of salvation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The implications of that mistake usually result in things like legalism and heavy-handed leadership and divisiveness within the church body. But others fall into the opposite wrong perspective in which they, they emphasize the distinctions between primary and secondary issues to such a degree that they just focus only on the gospel and act almost as if these secondary issues are just unknowable or just not worth us exploring. That error results in a church that's a mile wide but an inch deep, and it's theology. And it actually is a papier-mâché form of unity in which the people constantly claim to be unified but don't actually understand, they don't even believe the same things. And any person who seeks to be definitive on a secondary issue, no matter how important it may be, is seen as prideful and divisive. Now, our objective at NBC is to strike a healthy biblical balance between those two perspectives. Obviously, there are primary issues. When we say a primary issue, we mean if you don't get that right, you are not a Christian. That's a primary issue. Obviously, those are of utmost importance because they're a matter of life and death, eternally speaking. But we also have to remember what we've talked about in recent days, and that is in the Great Commission, Christ has given the church the mission of not only sharing the gospel and its implications, but everything that Christ taught. Remember Matthew 28, he says that we are to teach them to observe all things that I commanded you. Obviously, Jesus had the the full expectation that his people would be able to not only understand his teachings, but then pass those teachings on to others and call them to obey them. So with that in mind, while we never want to make the, the deadly mistake of elevating every doctrine to the same level as primary doctrines, we also don't want to make the mistake of acting as if the Bible is so unclear that we just simply can't even go near other issues. This mistake would be just like the ER doctor that, that had to understand that he had to resolve not only the primary issue at hand for that man, but also his other secondary issues if that man was to go on to full health. The church is healthy and thriving when the full counsel of God is taught and explained. Now, why have I said all of this? It's because last week we began a series, a six-week series around this subject a biblical understanding of elder leadership. And many in evangelicalism would say that the Bible simply doesn't give us one clear structure for the local church that every church is responsible to follow. And while I would admit that we have brothers and sisters who we love and are faithful men that disagree with us on this, and so in that sense this is a secondary issue, it's not a matter of of eternal life and death, I also would say that the Bible does, in fact, give us clarity when it comes to the structure of the local church. And we ought to take that seriously. I mean, just think about the implications of what we said last week, and that is that God has given to the church Christ Jesus as the head. Are we really willing to say that the Lord Jesus has been so unclear, and in that case, ineffective, in giving us revelation that we just simply have to throw up our hands and say, well, each church can just choose what they want to do when it comes to how they structure the church. No, our head has been successful in giving us revelation so that we as a church, His church, will know what it is He expects. And this morning what I want us to see is that just as God has an order for creation, He has an order for the family life within the home, He also has an order that he intends for us to follow when it comes to the local church. Now, right up front, I want to go ahead and give you all of the lesson titles that we'll be studying over these six weeks so you understand where we're going, because I'm going to have to leave things out this morning, and I want you to understand we're going to cover those later on in the series. But here are the six lesson titles. Last week, we began with the head of the church, this morning, we'll be looking at a case for elder rule. What is the biblical argument for the style of or structure that we have here in our local church? Thirdly, the qualifications for elders. And then two weeks on the role of elders. And the, the final lesson will be on the congregation's response to leadership. And it's my hope and prayer that Tom Pennington will be able to be with us that morning on September the 25th. And he will give that sixth and final lesson. But this is kind of where we're going to give you an idea. Again, we're doing this because we're in this unique, exciting season in our church where we are considering prayerfully adding two men to our elder leadership team. And I want us as a church to understand why are we doing this and why are we doing it this way. This is not my personal preference or my personal opinion. This is what we believe the scriptures clearly teach. Now let me just be up front with you this morning that today's lesson will be more along the lines of teaching than preaching. I'm going to make an argument from the Scriptures and try to bring you along to understand how we've landed where we are in the kind of structure that we have in our church. But with that said, there's much application at the same time for us to take away from this. That'll come out some this morning, but a lot more in the weeks to come. So, get your coffee, strap in, and let's look at what the Scriptures say about the biblical case for elder rule or elder leadership. I'm going to frame this around three biblical arguments. Argument argument number one is the origin of eldership. The origin, where does it come from? Now, before we get to our text for this morning, I want to just briefly remind you of where we left off last week because it directly impacts the origin of eldership. You may recall we were in Ephesians chapter 1 at the end of the chapter there in verses 22 and 23 where it says that, And he, that's God the Father, put all things in subjection under his, Christ's, feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In these verses we marveled at the fact that God the Father has given this gracious gift to the church of our perfect Savior, who's exalted above all authority, Jesus Christ, to be our head. That's the gift that the Father's given to the church. We are ultimately ruled and led by the sovereign king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that brings up an immediate question. How exactly has Christ chosen to exercise that headship practically, in the local church. How does that flesh out? What's the program or the structure that Christ has put in place? We would assume, of course, that if Christ is going to be the head of the church, he's going to dictate things like the mission of the church, the theology of the church, the structure of the church. If if Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18 that he will build his church, how exactly is he going to do that? Well, he's told us that clearly on the pages of Scripture. That brings us to our text for this morning, our primary text, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Now, in the weeks to come, we'll be looking at a lot of Ephesians chapter 4, but this morning, primarily we'll be looking at verse 11. But I want to read, to start, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. Beginning in verse 11, he says, "...and he gave some as apostles..." and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, in a nutshell, this verse reveals for us how our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, has structured His church so that it grows in maturity and unity into the image of the Son. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 and the rest of chapter 4 in the weeks to come. But this morning we have to begin with the foundation of verse 11. And the verse 11 has great implications. In verse 11 we see this wonderful master plan of Christ for the leadership of His church. Now remember, keep in mind throughout this lesson that all of this begins with the fact that the Father gave the Son to the church. Now, in verse 11 of chapter 4, we see the Son as the head of the church giving gifts to the church. And it's through the gifts that the Son gives to the church that He will ultimately exercise His headship over the church. Look with me at verse 7. We didn't read verse 7. But this is also in the context. Ephesians 4 verse 7 says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We'll talk about that more in weeks to come. But essentially the meaning there is that Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, has given a gift to each believer that is for the benefit and edification of the church. The church is built up as each of you use your gifts in the local body. But not just that. Going down to verse 11, where we're going to study today, look at the first words there. And he gave. He is the reference to Jesus Christ. He gave not only gifts, spiritual gifts to the body, but he gave gifted men who would fulfill these roles or offices for the local church. And it's through those gifted men the people would be equipped to use their gifts for the benefit of the body And this is how the body grows and is protected. What are these offices or roles that Christ has appointed? There are four in this verse. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, or shepherd teachers, we could translate it. We saw last week, very briefly, that those first two offices of apostle and prophet played a foundational role for the church. Christ used them to lay the foundation upon which the church would be built. The purpose of those two first offices, apostle and New Testament prophet, have been fulfilled. And so those offices are no longer active in the church today. But, don't miss this, though the office has ceased, the fruit of the ministry that came through that office is still very much active today. What am I talking about? This is the fruit that came out of their ministry, the New Testament that you hold in your hands. And so every single time you open the Scriptures and read the New Testament, you're benefiting from this gift that Christ has given to the church of the apostles and alongside them the New Testament prophets. You remember last week we read from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, it says, "...so then you're no longer strangers and aliens." But your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we have the entirety of the foundation of the church consisting of the cornerstone who is the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the ministry of the apostles and prophets. Now when you step back and think about it, And I enjoy doing that again this week. These four offices fit together in such a way that we see this wonderful, thought-out, masterful plan of Christ for the upbuilding and protection of his church. Think of it this way. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a, a new believer right after the day of Pentecost. Okay, it's the very earliest days of the church. You're excited. You've been redeemed, born again. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. You're excited to follow after this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you also understand from the teaching of Christ and the apostles that the Mosaic Covenant, along with its regulations, have been fulfilled. And so now we're under a new covenant. But there's one problem. All you have at that time, the only verified, confirmed revelation you have to read and study, is the Old Testament. There is, at that point, no New Testament. So, what do you do? How does the church know how to function? How do these new believers know what they're supposed to do or what Christ expects of the church? So, in his infinite wisdom, Christ gives to the church, initially the apostles and the New Testament prophets... And then through the use of miracles and fulfilled prophecy, Christ makes it abundantly clear that these and only these are his verified mouthpieces. Just like we talked about with Moses and the the visible demonstration of the power of God through his ministry that made it clear Moses was his man. He does the same thing essentially through the apostles so that the people understand, oh, that one is an apostle of Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Well, Acts 2.42-43, this is a, a description of the new believers there after Pentecost. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So, God's testifying visibly, these are my mouthpieces, listen to them. There were only 13 apostles of Jesus Christ. The 11 original apostles added to them was Matthias after Judas apostatized. And then finally the apostle Paul as one untimely born as he describes himself. All of these men were called by Christ into service in this special role. We see also Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.12 saying this. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Obviously, Paul is agreeing here, saying, Look, you should know, Corinthians, he's defending his apostleship, you should know because God has testified visibly before you through me by miracles that I am an apostle. The same thing was true of the other apostles. So, their ministry was verified by God, and through them, God gave revelation which ultimately would be written down and brought into what we now have as the New Testament. It was one of the primary roles of the ministry of the apostles. Now, just very quickly in this argument, I want to mention this because some of you, if you've studied this, may have this question. Some would undermine the argument that I just made by pointing out the fact that the word or title apostle is used in the New Testament to refer to some other men outside of this group of 13. Like Barnabas, Silas, and others. Now, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So, how is it that I would say then there were only 13? It's because we have to understand the meaning of the Greek word apostle. The word apostle simply means a sent one or an envoy. You could be an apostle from a local church. Sent out by that local church, like Barnabas, for example. He was an apostle, in that sense, sent out by the authority of that local church to go and do that mission work. You could be sent out by another apostle. And so, in that sense, be an apostle of that apostle, because all the word means is a sent one. You're sent out by someone else to do that work. There were only 13 who were sent out specifically by the resurrected Jesus Christ as his apostles. And so that's what I'm talking about, Apostles with capital A. The other apostles, those who have that title, if you look at the context, are sent out by local churches or sent out by the Apostle Paul or others. So there were only 13. Their ministry was done, fulfilled, and ended with the death of the Apostle John. That brings us now to the New Testament prophet. This is the second category or office. Stay with me, because all of this ties in to Christ's plan for his church. Now, with this role, the New Testament prophets were at a level underneath the authority of the apostles. They were not on the same playing field or level of authority. But God did give to some in the early church the gift of not only teaching, but of being able to give predictive prophecy or real new revelation from God to the church. Again, if you think about it, this makes perfect sense. At this time, you don't have the New Testament. And so, as the apostles are going from church to church, and they're, they're preaching and giving the revelation of Jesus Christ, obviously, they can't be in every church at the same time. And so, Christ protected and preserved and taught his church by raising up some within local churches who had this gift of prophecy. Men like Agabus, as an example, in Acts chapter 21. In Acts 21, verses 10 and 11, we read this. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He's prophesying that Paul would be arrested when he went to Jerusalem. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he's arrested. Okay, It's an example of a New Testament prophet. Now all of that fits together and makes perfect sense then as to why Paul would say the apostles and the New Testament prophets form part of the foundation of the church. How is that? It's because Christ being the cornerstone laid the foundation and then it was Christ's revelation that he gave by the Holy Spirit to these men to serve as the revelatory foundation of the church. Now... Like the apostles, the ministry of the New Testament prophet has ceased because it's accomplished its work. And we have it here in this book we call the scriptures, specifically the New Testament. But that brings up a question. Now what? If those two offices have ceased, how is it that Christ continues to care for his church, universal and in its local expressions? Well, that brings us then to the next two offices listed here in Ephesians 4, verse 11. We have the apostles, we have the prophets. The next on the list is the office of evangelist, and finally, pastor-teachers. Very quickly, we don't have as much information in the scriptures about this role of evangelist. It's only mentioned three times. It's mentioned here, obviously, and then it's also mentioned of Philip in Acts 21, 8, and it's mentioned of Timothy, As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4-5, to do the work of an evangelist. So very quickly, as we put the pieces together in the New Testament, it seems that here in this passage it's referring not just to the gift of evangelism in general, but to a specific office, a role that someone was fulfilling. Obviously, we're all to share the gospel. Whether you have the gift of evangelism or not, we are to be busy about the Great Commission. There are some who have a gift of evangelism in the sense that they they really excel at that. They're, They're very gifted at it. And God uses their proclamation of the gospel, perhaps more frequently than others, to bear fruit of people coming to salvation. That's a gift of evangelism. But that's not the same as what's referred to here as the evangelist or the role of the evangelist. It seems like this particular gifting or office happened to be those who were not only gifted at evangelism, but who went out, shared the gospel, and planted new local churches. And then set up over those churches qualified leadership, and then they moved on and did it somewhere else. They did it in conjunction usually with the apostles in the beginning, but then they continued to carry on the apostolic work of church planting. Obviously, there, as I said, there is this gift of evangelism, but that's not the same thing. Also, this is not referring to itinerant preachers who go from church to church and have tent revivals, as we used to call them. Uh, we used to call those evangelists. That's not what this is talking about here. In fact, the word that we probably most often use of a person doing this work would be missionary. This is a missionary, but not just any missionary. It's a missionary focused on church planting they're they're pushing the great commission forward into new areas preaching the gospel planting churches setting up leadership and moving on to a new place to do the same thing now with all of those offices in mind we come to the question of what about the local church We see the big picture. The universal church is cared for through the revelation of the apostles and the New Testament prophets. We see that the the Great Commission has continued to be pushed forth to the other ends of the the earth by evangelists and obviously us as well as we share the gospel. But what about the local church? How has Christ provided so that the local church is protected, taught, edified, and built up? This brings us to the fourth office, pastor-teachers. Now, I'm sure by this point, you're probably very curious as to why I'm combining these two into one instead of splitting them into two different offices. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds of this, but it's because of an issue with the Greek text. The Greek text makes it very clear that this is one office and not two, pastor-teacher. And the way we know that is because of the use of something called the article. If you've studied Greek or Latin... You understand the article is usually referring to the word the. It's a fancy way of saying the word the. Here in our text, it's translated with the word some. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Notice that the word some is only applied uh, or is applied to both of those on the last at the end of the list. But each of the others get their own article. What this means, essentially, it's a way in the Greek language to say that these two things go together. When you use one article for two things, it means the two are connected. All of the others get their own article. These two get one article together. The significance of that is simply this. It's one office. It's emphasizing the primary role of this office of pastor or shepherd. The primary way that the the pastor or shepherd shepherds the sheep is through the means of teaching. Like evangelism and and the role of evangelist, there are others in the church who have the gift of teaching. But that doesn't mean necessarily that they are elders. There are those who teach that are not elders. But there should be no elders or pastors who are not teachers. Because it's it's synonymous with the role. They are shepherd teachers. That is the, the, the fourth Of these uh, roles, and it's the one that I want to focus on now. Now, the word pastor here is the same Greek word for the word shepherd. In fact, in most places, it's actually translated as shepherd instead of pastor. And this is basically a title with a description: Pastor, shepherd, teachers. They are pastors who teach. Um, that is their role, their function. Now there are other roles we'll see in Scripture, but that one is synonymous with the name. Now the reason that I'm referring to this, or, or, or this is the place, rather than I'm referring to, the origin of elder leadership. I believe it comes here in this passage, in the giving of these roles to the church from our head, who is given to us by the Father. Jesus has designed the local church to be cared for and edified and built up by giving to the church pastor-teachers, shepherd-teachers. So just think about how this works together. The first two categories, apostles and prophets, laid the revelation, the foundation of the church, universal, that would be for all time. The third category of gifted leaders takes that gospel and keeps pushing it to the utter ends of the earth so that the church is built up as new churches are planted. And then finally, Christ has seen to it that each local church is cared for by giving to it the gift of shepherd teachers, pastor teachers. This is the wonderful master plan of Christ for the church, to see to it that the church is cared for. Now, some of you are tracking with me, and because of that, you have a question. You, perhaps you see the argument that I'm making, but you're wondering why I would say that this is the place where we have the origin of elder leadership when the word elder doesn't appear on the list. And that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that question because that's going to lead us now into our second argument. The second argument is the office of elder. So we have the origin of elder. Now we're going to talk about the office of elder. One of the reasons that this becomes confusing and there are debates over this issue is because there are three different Greek terms used in the Bible to describe one office. Three words in the Greek to describe one office. And this gets even more confusing Because there are two different ways that we translate each of those three words into English, so actually there are six English words that refer to one office. That's why you you hear someone they say we have we have a bishop in our church, and we have presbyters, and we have pastors, we have elders, we have overseers. All of those words are English translations of three Greek words that all mean the same thing. As far as the I wouldn't say they mean the same thing, but they all refer to the same office the same role in the church. I want to prove this to you because I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't normally show you Greek words, but I think it's important to see these today because I want you to see how this works. Here are the three primary Greek words or the, the three Greek words that are used for this office. The first one is poimen, and it's the word we just saw in Ephesians. Poimen means shepherd or pastor. The second word is Presbyteros, which is elder or presbyter, is how we would translate that into English. And then episkopos is overseer or bishop. But now you see where the confusion can come from. When you've got six different words, all referring to the same office, it can get a little bit confusing. Now, let me just make a clarification. I'm not saying that every denomination or individual church uses these words interchangeably. That's not true. If you're talking to someone and they say, we have elders or we have presbyters, you have to ask them, what what does that mean? Have them explain that. What I'm saying is, when the Bible uses these three Greek terms, the Bible's referring to one singular office, the same office. And I want to prove that to you now. So we're going to look at the biblical meaning of these words. Now, first of all, Understand that the the term elder would have been a very familiar term to these new Christians, particularly those from a Jewish background. Because all throughout the Old Testament, since the days of Moses, there have been elders in the community who were given responsibility over smaller groups of people. They They called them the elders of the people. We see this even in the days of Jesus. The Sanhedrin is referred to as the elders of the people in Luke 22, verse 66. It says, when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled. This was a common term for the Jewish people. They understood this idea of eldership and what it meant, at least in that context. But when we come to the church, the term elder is, is kept, but it begins to mean something different than what it meant in the Jewish community. And it begins to be described by two other terms, pastor and overseer. And this is where the overlap happens. Now, follow me through this as I'm going to show you several different passages that use these three words interchangeably to refer to the same office. And we're going to look at the two places in Scripture where we have the qualifications for elders. These are both written by Paul. One is to Timothy and one is to Titus on both lists you have an almost a nearly identical list he 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 adds some to different lists but it's nearly an identical list and yes he, yet he uses different terms to describe the office let's look at first timothy chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 paul says it's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer overseer that's the word he uses here he uses it again in verse 2 an overseer then must be above reproach and he goes on to give the whole list for the qualifications for elders there all under the title overseer then we go to titus same author writing to titus about the same basic list of qualifications and yet look at the word he uses here titus 1 verse 5 For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Notice he uses interchangeably there the word elder in verse 5. And the word overseer in verse 7, which is the same word he used to Timothy back in 1 Timothy 3. So now we're starting to see that these offices are overlapping, that these, these words are overlapping. But it all comes together in 1 Peter. Listen to how 1 Peter uses all three of those Greek terms to re, re, uh, refer to the same office. 1 Peter chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. That's the same, it's used here in the, in the verb form, but it's the same word, shepherd or pastor, the flock of God among you, exercising what? Oversight. This is a different form of the same Greek word. Here in one passage, we have elders as the office, shepherding and oversight as the, the activities or the role of that office. Then finally, we see the same thing in the words of Paul in his instructions to the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, it says, From my latest he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Then listen to the instruction he gives to these elders in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God. Now you see, all three terms, again, are used together. And so as we, as we look at the progressive revelation of Scripture, what we see in the New Testament really is that the term elder became the term that most frequently was used to refer to the office itself. The term pastor and overseer became descriptive terms of the role of the elder. And that's where we get the term elder here and why we use that term in our church. But understand, we could equally use the word pastor or overseer, or they're all the same office in Scripture. I hope you can understand now how all of this fits together and why I said the origin of eldership comes there in Ephesians 4.11. It's because that word pastor there is used equally as elder and overseer. Christ then, here's the summary, Christ exercises his headship over each local church by giving to each church gifted men in both their their spiritual gifting and in their character to fulfill the office of elder. And through those men provides teaching, shepherding, and oversight. That's the simple version of how Christ is is providing leadership for his church. Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at the qualifications for elders and the specific roles, but I'm just giving you the picture of where all of this comes from. And then quickly, that brings us to a third and final argument. Argu- argument number three, the organization of eldership. Now that we see where it comes from and the office itself, how is this to function? Well, What's interesting is the New Testament doesn't simply tell us that the office exists, And it doesn't simply tell us how to recognize those who are to be uh, appointed to this office. It also tells us how the eldership in the church is to be organized. And it comes down to two words, two descriptions. When you think of how elder leadership should function in the church, think of these two words. They are the words plural and local. Plural and local. That is, there's to be a plurality or multiple of these men in each local church and they're to be functioning in the context of one local body, as opposed to having other, other bodies over those local elders. Let me prove this to you. We're actually going to look back at some passages we've already read and just bring out some other points that I failed to mention at that time. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5. We read this just a moment ago. But he says, this is Paul to Titus. For this reason I left you in Crete. Why did he leave him there? That you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now here we have Titus who's been sent out by the Apostle Paul. They've done a mission uh, evangelistic work there. People have come to Christ in each of the cities in Crete. And so he sends Timothy to set up local leadership over each of those local churches. And what I want you to see is that in Paul's understanding of how the church is to function, the work is not finished just with evangelism or even with the setting up of a group of believers meeting in the context of the local church. The work is not finished in his mind until local eldership is placed in each of those local bodies. And we know that because simply understanding the difference in a plural word and a singular word. In verse 5 he says, I want you to appoint elders plural in every city singular multiple elders in every city the idea being that each city had its own church so each local body has multiple qualified elders serving in that role in those churches This has been the exact model that we've tried to follow since we planted Northlake Bible Church. The elders of Countryside Bible Church sent out a group of disciples to come to a new place to start a new church. I initially have played the role, similar to Titus, in the sense of, of shepherding the local church and trying to raise up other men, along with the elders of Countryside, who would be qualified to serve in this role here. The primary difference is Titus planned to then leave. I'm not going anywhere, so you're stuck with me. I'm staying here. I'm not leaving. But that's the same model, essentially, that we've tried to replicate here because we believe it's the biblical model. Let me show it to you in two other passages that we read earlier as well. Again, Acts chapter 20, Paul to the Ephesian elders. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. The church in Ephesus, one church, had multiple qualified elders. He goes on to say, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers. The idea is you are shepherding this flock of the people among you. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5. He says, Shepherd the flock of God among you. I'm not the pastor of Northlake, the town. I'm not the pastor of, of any other church. The elders here won't have responsibility over shepherding souls of anyone outside the people of this church. We are to shepherd the flock of God among us. That is here in this local context. Now that's the end of the argument, but now I want you to think about the wisdom of this order that Christ has given to the church. The wisdom of eldership being plural and the wisdom of eldership being local just think about this let's talk about the wisdom of a plurality first of all why is that wise for christ to say that instead of having just one elder leading the church there should be a plurality well a plurality of qualified elders is a protection for the church and for the elders because every single man no matter how mature or faithful he is has weaknesses every single man Unless we appoint an elder body that consists of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people on that board will have weaknesses. I have weaknesses. A plurality of leadership doesn't ensure perfect leadership, but it does protect the church in this way. When you have a plurality, the church gets the benefits of the gifts of those men, but it helps keep at bay the weaknesses of those men as they work together, collective wisdom. Think of Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there's no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. I've seen this play out so many times, practically in elder meetings before with other godly men. Typically before a meeting, an agenda goes out so that we all know what's gonna be talked about. And so we start to formulate uh, intelligent biblical ideas to be able to bring to the conversation at that meeting. And invariably, Uh, when there is a decision that has to be made, each of us come with an idea that we think would be an application of a biblical text to that idea. But as the discussion happens around the table, the indecision ends up being a stronger conglomerate of the different ideas that were brought that's better than any of the one individual ideas on their own. That's the wisdom of a plurality. Another protection of a plurality is the fact that it's easier... For one faithful godly man to, to cave under pressure when holding the line of faithfulness will end in, in uncomfortable repercussions. It's easier for that to happen than for a group of godly men to stand, uh, to, to be tempted as a group to go into those things. It's not impossible, I'm not saying that, but it is a hedge of protection when you have a plurality of godly men. Secondly, let's look at the wisdom of local leadership. Why is that wise? Well, it's because, and we'll talk more about this, but it's because, as we said, the role of the elder is not just oversight. It's shepherding. Shepherd the flock of God among you providing oversight. See, shepherding is not a long-range activity. And and what I want to encourage you not to do and what I'm going to encourage myself and our other elders never to do is to think about the elders as simply a decision-making body. Okay, we're, we're not a, a legislature. That, that's not what elders are called to be. Elders are shepherds. They're to know the people, to love the people, to care for the souls of those people. The oversight that they give is to be in the context of an intimate knowledge and care for the people of Christ, recognizing you're not my people, you're the people of Christ. And we are under shepherds and stewards to love and care for the body. You cannot effectively shepherd people from a distance. And that's why we have to have local eldership here in this specific body you can make administrative decisions from a distance and so if the elders were just a decision-making body sure you can have elders in in colorado that are making decisions here and they can make administrative decisions but that's not god's plan for the church his plan is that that church has shepherds who know those people and therefore their decisions are biblical but they're also through the lens of the specific people they're caring for and that affects the way that oversight is carried out That's why from the beginning, our goal and plan has been for this church to be autonomous. The the elders at Countryside love you. They love me. They're godly men. They've provided very helpful wisdom for us on decisions that needed to be made. But they would be the first to tell you that them remaining ultimately as the elders of our church from a distance would be a detriment to our church. Not because of them or any mistake that they have made. It's because Christ's plan is for shepherds in each body to be the elders of that body. That's their desire. It's our desire. And that's why we've taken the steps that we've taken. That way, shepherds lead as loving shepherds and not dictators, which can happen when you're simply making decisions from afar. Now, with all of that said, there are many practical applications. We're going to get into these more and more in the coming weeks but I want to leave you with just two practical applications this morning. The first one is this. You need to know Christ's structure for the church. You need to know it personally. So many Christians have made the mistake of thinking that the structure of the church and its leadership really doesn't matter that much. And I hope that you've been convinced from Scripture this morning that that kind of thinking is, is flawed. If Christ is the head of the church then the church is responsible to study the revelation that he's given to us to know what our head desires for our church. Far too long, for far too long, pragmatism has had sway over the decisions churches have made when it comes to their structure. Pragmatism is the idea that we should just do whatever works best to get the job done. But if we're to be faithful to our head, then our mentality is not just do whatever works best. It's do whatever is most faithful to the text of Scripture that's been given to us by Christ. Listen, I want you to have confidence that when we come to the day of installing elders here in our church, that we're not doing that because I want to do that or because that's my personal preference. I want you to be able to take the Bible in hand and say, no, we're doing it because of this chapter and verse. We're seeking to be faithful to our head. My desire for our church is always for you to be Bereans. I don't want you to ever take anything just because I say it. I want you to take it back to the scripture and see it on the pages of Revelation that Christ has given to us. And once we know the structure of the church, that leads us to a second application. We need to trust Christ's structure for the church. You know, if we're not careful, we'll allow our past experiences to lead us to distrust Christ's structure for the church. Some of you have had really bad experiences with this model because the men in that position were unfaithful in some way. And certainly that can happen. It only works as men remain qualified in their character and in their their, uh, theology and gifting. But others of you may maybe had a really good experience at another local church that had a very different model of leadership. And so you can be equally tempted to just cast off Christ's instructions because say hey this really worked well, let's just do this. But again, we don't make our decisions based on past experiences or pragmatism. Obedience to Christ demands that we simply study the scriptures and once we're convinced we've come to an accurate understanding we seek to obey that to the best of our ability, empowered by the Spirit of God. We trust Christ, our head, that he is still building the church. He is still protecting the church and sanctifying the church. And so we march forward in obedience, ultimately in trust, not of a group of men, but in trust of our Savior. You know, Christ loves the church more than any of us could ever imagine. And if you doubt that, I just want to leave you with this reminder, this passage of Scripture from Ephesians chapter 5. Christ's love for the church is so thorough that Paul instructs husbands to model this kind of love towards their wives. Listen to the Christ's love for the church, Ephesians five twenty five: Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus Christ loves his church to the point that he sacrificed his own life to pay for her redemption. But not only that. He continues to wash her with the word, to sanctify his church, so that he will bring her to himself in perfect glory. That's how much Christ loves the church. And let me just say to you this morning, if you've never come to the place where you've understood that, where you have understood your sin, where you've confessed your sin to Christ, understanding the sacrificial death that he gave on the cross for your sins, I am encourage you this morning to understand that you can't love the church Until you love the Lord of the church, you have to begin with a humble admission of your sin, coming in repentant faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing his sacrifice and his resurrection, that he is your only hope of salvation. And so, as we marvel over what Christ has done for the church, let us not forget how the church was founded. It was founded on the very blood of the Son of God, he purchased it with his blood. Let us never get past that, even as we get to the structure of the church. We must always begin with the perfect, sacrificial death of the Savior.